tell me. I would have put on fancy clothes. Well, we'll be, yeah, well, this will be going to Homeland Security. This will be going to Homeland Security, you know. <laughs> they need to update their files. Well, it's good to see you again after uh, quite a long time. Too long, yeah. How are things in, in Arizona? Very pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, talk about uh, Iran, but in particular locating it in the area of uh, U.S. foreign policy post-1945. Uh, the Grand Area Strategy is laid out, uh, and Iran takes on enormous significance because of its obvious oil wealth. Oil wealth and uh, strategic position. Uh, at first, uh, uh, right after the, it was taken for granted in the Grand Strategy planning that the United States would uh, dominate uh, the Middle East, uh, what Eisenhower called the strategically most important area in the world, uh, uh, material prize without uh, any, an uh, any analog and so on. Uh, the, the basic idea of the, the early stage of the grand strategy and the early stages of the war were that the uh, the U.S. would uh, take over what they called the Grand Area, uh, of course the Western Hemisphere, uh, the former British Empire, uh, and uh, the Far East. And they assumed at that time that Germany would probably win the war, so there would be a two, two major powers, a German-based, uh, a lot of Eurasia and the United States uh, with this Grand Area. By the time the Russians uh, it was clear that the Russians would defeat Germany after the Stalingrad and the great tank battle in Kursk. The planning was modified, and the uh, idea would be that the Grand Area would include as much of Eurasia as possible, of course maintaining the uh, Middle East oil resources. Uh, at that time, uh, there was a conflict over Iran right at the end of the Second World War. The Russians uh, supported a separation movement in the north. Uh, the British, of course, controlled it. They wanted to maintain control. The Russians were essentially expelled. It was under the control of uh, Britain and a client state. Uh, the, uh, there was, however, a nationalist movement, and uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, Iranian leader, Mohammad Mossadegh, led a movement to try to nationalize uh, Iranian oil. British obviously didn't want that, but uh, they tried to uh, stop this development. They were in their post-war straits. They were unable to do it, called in the United States, which uh, basically uh, took the prime role in carrying out a, uh, implementing a military coup, which uh, deposed the parliamentary regime and installed the Shah, who was a loyal client. He, uh, Iran remained uh, one of the uh, sort of pillars of control of the Middle East uh, uh, as long as the Shah remained in power. Shah had very close relations with Israel. They were not formal because theoretically uh, uh, the Islamic states were supposed to be opposed to Israeli uh, occupation, but the relations were extremely close. They were 
reveals in detail after the Shah fell. Now the third pillar of the U.S. control was Saudi Arabia, so there's kind of a tacit alliance between Iran, uh, Israel, uh, more tacit Israel and Saudi Arabia with the US, under the U.S. aegis. 1979, the Shah was overthrown. Uh, the, uh, the U.S. at first uh, considered trying to uh, uh, Nuclear capability, 
which many countries have, that is the capacity to produce nuclear weapons if the occasion arises. And finally, that led to the, uh, uh, as uh, Iran was uh, rapidly increasing its capacities, uh, more centrifuges and so on, Obama finally uh, agreed to uh, uh, the joint agreement, the, uh, uh, the Iran nuclear deal, informally called in 2015. Uh, since then, according to U.S. intelligence, uh, Iran has completely lived up to it. There's no indication of any Iranian violation. Uh, the Trump administration just pulled out of it uh, uh, and uh, is now uh, sharply escalated the uh, sanctions against Iran. Now there's a new pretext. It's that not nuclear weapons. It's that uh, Iran is uh, meddling in the region. It's unlike the United States. Uh, unlike uh, or every other country. In fact, what they're saying is Iran is attempting to extend its influence in the region. But it has to become what uh, Pompeo called a normal country, like us and Israel and others who never try to expand their influence. Uh, the, uh, essentially, it's saying uh, just capitulate. And uh, Pompeo particularly has, uh, uh, Secretary of State, that uh, U.S. sanctions are designed to try to reduce uh, Iranian uh, uh, oil exports to zero. Uh, that the U.S. has extraterritorial uh, uh, influence. It forces other countries to adopt, accept U.S. sanctions under threat that they will be excluded from the U.S. market, and in particular from financial markets, which are dominated by the United States. So the United States, as the world's leading rogue state, uh, enforces its own unilateral decisions on others, thanks to its power. But Bolton, of course, is, uh, just wants to go, let's bomb them. He said so over and over. Uh, the, uh, my, my Speculation is that uh, a lot of the fist waving at the moment is probably for for two reasons. One, to try to keep Iran off balance and intimidated, and also to intimidate others so they don't try to interfere with U.S. sanctions. But I think it's largely domestic. Uh, Trump has to, uh, if the Trump strategists are thinking clearly. Uh, assume they are, uh, the best way to approach the 2020 election is to have, uh, uh, to concoct uh, major threats all over, you know, uh, immigrants from Central America coming here to commit genocide against Americans, uh, Iran about to conquer the world, and uh, China doing this and that, and then uh, our uh, bold leader, you know, the orange hair, the one person who's capable of defending us from all of these uh, uh, terrible threats, not like these uh, uh, women who won't know how to do anything, or uh, Sleepy Joe, or uh, Crazy Bernie, or so on. Now that's the best way to move into an, an election, and that means maintaining tensions, but not intending to actually go to war. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, it's bad enough in itself. Uh, we have absolutely zero right to impose any sanctions on Iran, none. 
somehow this is legitimate. But there's absolutely no basis for that. But also the uh, tensions can easily blow up. Uh, anything could happen. An American ship in the Gulf could hit a mine, let's say, and some commander would say, okay, let's retaliate against an Iranian installation, and then an Iranian missile ship could shoot a missile presumably off and running. So it could blow up, uh, but, uh, and meanwhile, there are horrible effects all over the place, the worst in Yemen, where uh, our client, Saudi Arabia, with strong U.S. support, uh, arms, intelligence support, are uh, in fact creating uh, what the U.N. has described as the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. The U.S. blames it on Iran, but uh, it's pretty clear what's not really controversial what's happening. Uh, so I think there, uh, and if, if there is a confrontation with Iran, uh, the first victim will be Lebanon, which will simply be wiped out. And as soon as there's any threat of war, uh, Israel will certainly be unwilling to face the danger of uh, Hezbollah missiles, which are probably scattered all around Lebanon by now. So that you, uh, it's very likely that the first step uh, prior to direct conflict with Iran would be essentially to wipe out Lebanon or something like it. And those missiles in Lebanon were uh, from Iraq. They're from, they're, they come from Iran. So what is Iran's strategy in, in the region? You know, you hear this term, the Shia arc, uh, the Shia population in right. Iraq and Bahrain, yeah. Lebanon, Syria. The Shia arc is a Jordanian uh, concoction. Of course, Iran, like every other power, is trying to extend its influence. It's doing it in the, uh, typically in the Shia area, naturally, Shia state. Um, in, uh, in Lebanon, uh, the, uh, we don't have detailed records because they're not, they can't take a census. It would break down the fragile relationship that exists there among the, uh, in the sectarian system. But, but it's pretty clear that the Shiite population is the largest of the uh, uh, sectarian groups, and uh, they have a political representative. It's Hezbollah, who's in the parliament, and so on. Uh, Hezbollah uh, developed as uh, a guerrilla force. Uh, Israel was occupying southern Lebanon uh, after its 1982 invasion. This was in violation of uh, UN orders, but they pretty much stayed there in part through a proxy army. And uh, Hezbollah, the, the guerrilla force, finally drove Israel out. Was, they just couldn't control the, the, the situation. Uh, that turned them into a terrorist force. You're not allowed to drive out the invading army of a client state, obviously. Uh, since then, it's, uh, it serves Iranian interest. It sent fighters to uh, Syria, who are a large part of the support for the Assad government. Technically, that's quite legal. That was a recognized government, rotten government, so you can, on moral grounds, say you shouldn't do it, but you can't say on legal grounds you shouldn't. The U.S. was openly trying to overthrow the government. It's not secret, but uh, finally, uh, not if we want to go into that, but finally the, uh, it became clear that the Assad government would 
controlled uh, Syria. There's a few pockets of, uh, still left uh, unresolved the Kurdish areas and others, but it's pretty much won the war, which means that uh, Russia and Iran have the dominant uh, role in Syria. Uh, in Iraq, uh, there is a Shiite majority, and uh, the U.S. invasion of Iraq uh, pretty much handed the country over to Iran. Uh, it, uh, it had been a, a Sunni dictatorship, but of course with the Sunni dictatorship destroyed, the Shiite population gained a substantial role. And uh, so, for example, when uh, ISIS came pretty close to conquering in Iraq, it was the Shiite militias that drove them back with Iranian support. The U.S. participated, but secondarily. And now they have a strong role in the government. This is, in the United States, this is considered more Iranian meddling. But, uh, but uh, I think Iran's strategy is pretty straightforward. It's uh, expand their influence as they can in the region. Uh, as far as their military posture is concerned, I don't see any reason to question the analysis of U.S. intelligence. It seems pretty accurate. Uh, uh, their presentations to Congress uh, point, point out that Iran has very low military expenditures by the standards of the region, much, much less than the other countries, uh, dwarfed by uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, of course, Israel. That uh, its uh, uh, military doctrine is essentially defensive, uh, designed to uh, deter an invasion uh, long enough for diplomatic efforts to be initiated according to U.S. intelligence if they have a nuclear weapons program, which we have no reason to believe they do, but if they do, it would be part of their deterrent strategy. That's the real Iranian threat. It has a deterrent strategy. And for the states that want to be free to rampage in the region, Deterrence is an existential threat. Uh, you don't want to be deterred. You want to be able to do what, what, what you'd like. That's primarily the U.S. and Israel. You want to be free to act uh, forcefully in the region without any deterrent. Uh, to be uh, accurate, that's the real Iranian threat. That's what called uh, the State Department calls a successful defiance. That's the uh, term the State Department used to uh, explain uh, back in the early 60s why uh, we cannot tolerate the Castro regime because of its successful defiance of the United States. That's absolutely intolerable if you intend to be able to rule the world by force if necessary. And it um, seems a component of that is the threat of a good example. There's also that, but I don't think that's true in the case of Iran. Iran is a th government is a threat to its own people. I think that's 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 uh, fair enough to say, and it's not a real model for anyone. Cuba was quite different. In fact, if you look at back in the early '60s at the uh, internal documents that have been declassified, there was great concern that uh, as uh, Arthur Schlesinger and Kennedy's advisor close advisor, particularly on Latin American affairs, he said, uh, the problem with Cuba is the uh, Castro idea 
of taking matters into your own hands which has great appeal to others in the region who are suffering from the same circumstances as cuba was under the us backed somoza regime and that's dangerous the idea that people should take have the right to take things into their own hands and separate themselves from us domination is not going to be acceptable that's successful defiance and another thing that plays out since 1945 is washington's resistance to independent nationalism yes but that's automatic for a hegemonic power same with britain when it was running much of the world same with france and its domains you don't want independent nationalism in fact it's often made quite explicit so in the case of right after the second world war when the us was beginning to try to organize the post war world the first concern was to make sure that the western hemisphere was totally under control and in february 1945 the us called a an economic a hemispheric conference this was in mexico chapultepec mexico and the main theme of the conference was precisely what you described it was to end any kind of economic nationalism that was the phrase that was used the state department internally warned that latin american countries are infected by the idea i'm virtually quoting now by the idea of a new nationalism which meant that countries that the people of a country should be the first beneficiaries of the country's resources and obviously that's totally intolerable the first beneficiaries have to be us investors so that's the philosophy of the new nationalism and that has to be crushed and the chapultepec conference in fact made it explicit that economic nationalism would not be tolerated so for example to take a case that was discussed brazil major country could produce steel but not high quality steel of the kind that the us would specialize in incidentally there's as always one unmentioned exception to the rules the us is permitted to follow policies of economic nationalism in fact the us had poured government resources massively into development of what became the high tech economy of the future computers internet and so on but that's the usual exception but for the others they can't succumb to this idea that the first beneficiaries of a country's resources should be the people of that country that's completely intolerable of course this of course is framed in all sorts of nice rhetoric about free markets and so on and so forth but the meaning is quite explicit you've often quoted george kennan you know a very well respected venerated official his famous 1948 memo we have 50% of the world's wealth but only 6.3% of its population our real task in the coming period 
is to devise a pattern of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity. Now, that was 1948. I was interested to discover that two years later, he made a statement about Latin America to the effect, the protection of our raw materials, that's a direct quote, in the rest of the world, particularly in Latin America, would trump concern over what he called police repression. Yeah, so police repression may be necessary to maintain control, control over our resources. It's, uh, remember that he was at the dovish extreme of the policy uh, spectrum, in fact, so much so that he was kicked out about that time and replaced by a, a hardliner, Paul Nixon, who was considered too soft for this tough world. It's kind of interesting that uh, his estimate of, of the U.S. having 50% of the world's resources is probably exaggerated now that more careful work has been done. The statistics aren't great for that period, but there are studies that are probably less than that. However, it may be true today. Uh, it's uh, in the modern contemporary period of globalization, global supply chains and so on, uh, national accounts, meaning uh, the country's share of GDP, global GDP, is le much less relevant than it used to be. A much more relevant uh, measure of a country's power is the wealth controlled by uh, locally, by domestically based uh, multinational corporations. And there, what you find is that US corporations own about 50% of world wealth. Now there are good statistics. There's a very, a very good studies of this by a political, very good political economist, uh, Sean Kenji Starr, who has uh, several articles, a new book coming out on it with extensive details. And uh, this, as he points out, this is a, a degree of control of the international economy that has absolutely no parallel or counterpart in history, in fact. So that's, uh, this may be, it'll be interesting to see what the impact is of Trump's uh, wrecking ball on all of this, which is uh, breaking the uh, system of global supply chains that have been carefully developed over the years, which may have some impact, we really don't know. So far, it's just harming the global economy. Getting back to uh, Iran, you mentioned uh, in our book, Global Discontents, that any, I'm quoting, any concern about Iranian weapons of mass destruction could be uh, alleviated by the single means of heeding Iran's call to establish a weapons of mass destruction free zone in the Middle East. This is almost on the level of Samizat. It's barely known or, or reported on. Well, it's, it's not a secret, and it's not just Iran's call. Uh, this uh, proposal for a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East and extended to WMD-free zones, uh, that actually comes from the Arab states. Uh, Egypt and others initiated that back in the early 90s. They called for a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East. There are such zones uh, that have been established in several parts of the world. It's kind of interesting to look at them. They 
aren't in effect because the United States has not accepted them, but uh, they, they're theoretically there. Uh, and the one for the Middle East would be extremely important. The Arab states pushed for this for a long time. The non-aligned countries, the G77, that's by now about 130 countries, uh, have called for it strongly. Uh, Iran as uh, uh, the spokes spokesperson for the G77 strongly called for it. Uh, Europe pretty much supports it, uh, and probably not England, but others. Uh, the, uh, in fact, there's almost total global support for it. It would, of course, end, uh, you adding to it, uh, an inspection regime of a kind which already exists in Iran. Uh, that would essentially eliminate any concern over uh, not only nuclear weapons, but weapons of mass destruction. There's only one problem. The U.S. won't allow it. Uh, if there are, this comes up regularly at the uh, regular uh, review sessions of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, most recent, 2015, Obama blocked it. And everybody knows exactly why. Nobody will say, of course. Uh, but if you look at the arms control journals or professional journals, they're quite open about it because it's obvious. If there were such an agreement, uh, Israel's nuclear weapons would come under international inspection. The United States would be compelled to formally acknowledge that Israel has nuclear weapons. Of course, it knows that it does, everybody does, but you're not allowed to formally acknowledge it for a good reason. If you formally acknowledge it, U.S. aid to Israel has to terminate under, the, under U.S. law. And of course, you can find ways around it, but you can always violate your own laws, but um, that does become a problem. And it would mean that Israel's weapons would have to be inspected, not just nuclear, but also biological and chemical. And that's intolerable, so we can't allow that. So therefore, we can't move towards a, a WMD-free zone, which of course, as you say, would end the problem. It's also worth, there's another thing that you can only read in Samistat. The U.S. has a special commitment to this, a unique commitment along with Britain. Uh, the reason is that uh, when the U.S. and Britain, you know, its British poodle, were uh, planning an invasion of Iraq, uh, they sought desperately to seek some uh, legal cover for it so it wouldn't look like just a direct aggression. And they appealed to a U.N. Security Council resolution in 1991, which called on Saddam Hussein to end his nuclear weapons programs, which in fact he had done. But the pretext was he hadn't done it, so he violated that resolution. So therefore, that was supposed to give some legitimacy to the invasion. Well, if you bother reading that UN resolution, you get down to uh, Article 14. It commits the signers of the resolution to the, the United States and Britain to work for a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East. So the U.S. and Britain have a unique responsibility to do this, try to find any discussion of it. And of course, it could resolve whatever problem one thinks there is. And in fact, according to U.S. intelligence, there's essentially none. Uh, the real problem is uh, pretty much what U.S. intelligence describes. Uh, the Iranian posture of uh, deterrence. 
that is the real danger um, we constantly regarded as an existential threat to um, Israel and the United States, which cannot tolerate deterrence. Well, there's big paydays for militaristic foreign policy, such as uh, the United States has. Uh, for example, uh, Li Fang, writing in the Intercept reports, uh, the large, large arm, large weapons manufacturers like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon have told their investors that escalating conflict with Iran uh, could be good for business. Oh, of course it is. Again, that's, that's, that's a factor. I, I don't think it's the major factor, but it certainly is a factor. It's uh, what's called good for the economy if you can uh, produce uh, uh, material goods that uh, you can sell to other countries. And uh, the, uh, the U.S. Uh, is uh, preeminent in the military force. Uh, that's its real comparative advantage, military force. Other countries can produce uh, computers and so on. But uh, the, um, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, is the, the largest uh, arms exporter. Its military budget is, uh, overwhelms uh, anything in the rest of the world. In fact, it's almost as large as the rest, rest of the world combined, much larger than uh, uh, other countries are. The, uh, the U.S. increase in the military budget under Trump, the increase is greater than the entire Russian military budget. China's way behind. Uh, but, uh, and of course, the U.S. is technologically way more advanced in military hardware and so on. So that's, uh, you know, that's the U.S. comparative advantage. You naturally want to pursue it. But I think the major thing is just ensuring uh, that the world remains pretty much under control. Did you ever make a connection between the external uh, violence of the U.S. state and what is happening internally with all the shootings and mass murders? The U.S. is a very strange country. Um, take uh, the, uh, from the point of view of its infrastructure, uh, the United States often looks like a third world country. I mean, if you uh, take a plane and from Europe and you land in Kennedy Airport and, and try to get into New York, it's like uh, being somewhere in the third world. Uh, you know, in fact, uh, not for everybody, of course. Um, there are people who can say, okay, fine, I'll go in my helicopter, but, you know, those people, but uh, for, for, it's, uh, and it's the same, uh, drive around any American city, uh, they're falling apart. Uh, you drive around Boston, you know, uh, everything's collapsing, Philadelphia, New York, uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers uh, gives the United States regularly um, the, the lowest ranking in infrastructure. It has enormous resources. This is the richest country in world history. It's uh, got advantages that are just incomparable in agricultural resources, mineral resources, uh, huge territory, uh, homogeneous. Uh, you can fly 3,000 miles and think you're in the same place where you started. Uh, there's nothing like that anywhere in the world. But it, and in fact, uh, there are successes. 
like the military force, or uh, like the deal with a high-tech economy, largely, substantially uh, government-based, uh, but uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, it's uh, the only country in the developed world in which uh, mortality is actually increasing. That's just unknown in developed societies. Uh, last several years, it's uh, mortality's uh, uh, declined, uh, life expectancy has declined in the United States. Uh, the major factor in this appears to be uh, what economists call uh, uh, deaths of distress. Uh, the uh, his work by two major economists, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, which have studied uh, carefully the uh, mortality figures. It turns out that in the cohort, uh, roughly 25 to 50, the working age cohort uh, of whites, the white working class uh, cohort, there's an increase in deaths what they call deaths of despair, suicide, uh, um, opioid death, overdoses, and so on. Uh, this is estimated that uh, about 150,000 deaths a year. It's not trivial. And uh, uh, the reason, presumably, it's generally assumed, is uh, the uh, uh, economic uh, stagnation since Reagan. In fact, this is the group that entered the workforce right around the early 80s when the uh, neoliberal programs began to be instituted. That has led to a sharp, uh, uh, it's led to a, a small slowdown in growth. Growth is not what it was before, but there is growth, but very highly, highly concentrated. The wealth has become extremely highly concentrated. Uh, right now, uh, according to the latest figures, 0.1% uh, of the population holds 20% of the country's wealth. Uh, the top 1% holds roughly 40%. Uh, half the population has negative net worth, meaning debts outweigh assets. Uh, there has been stagnation pretty much for uh, the workforce uh, over the past, over the whole neoliberal period. That's the group that we're talking about. Uh, naturally, this leads to uh, uh, anger, uh, uh, resentment, uh, desperation. Uh, similar things are happening in Europe under the austerity programs. That's the background for what's misleadingly called populism. Um, but uh, uh, in the United States, it's quite striking. The deaths of despair phenomenon seems to be a specific U.S. Uh, uh, characteristic, not matched in other countries. And remember, this is again the, there is no country in the world that has anything like the advantages of the United States in wealth, uh, power, resources, uh, scope, and so on. It's a shocking commentary. Uh, you hear a lot of uh, you know, you read uh, constantly that uh, uh, the unemployment rate uh, has uh, has reached, uh, you know, has reached a wonderful level, and, you know, barely three percent unemployed. But 
that's pretty misleading when you use actual labor department statistics turns out that the actual unemployment rate is over seven percent when you take into account the large number of people who've just dropped out of the workforce the labor force participation is considerably below what it was about 20 30 years ago you count this and there's good studies of this by economists you have about 7.5 roughly percent unemployment rate stagnation of wages real wages barely have moved since the year 2000 there has been a steady decline in just median family wealth and as I say for about half the population it's now negative there are many kind of third world characteristics which are extremely striking in the most in the richest most powerful country with incomparable advantages but in terms of guns it seems the US is the outlier we have 4% of the world's population with 40% of the globe's guns in this country well there's an interesting history to that very well studied it's a recent book by Pamela Hogg called something like the gun culture very interesting analysis what she shows is that after the Civil War there was the gun manufacturers didn't really have much of a market they tried to the US government market had declined of course foreign governments weren't much of a market it was then an agricultural society late 19th century and farmers had guns but they were like tools you know nothing special you had a nice old-fashioned gun was enough to chase away the wolves or something they didn't want the fancy guns that the gun manufacturers were producing so what happened is the first major huge advertising campaign which was kind of a model for others later an enormous campaign was carried out to try to create a gun culture they invented a Wild West which never existed with you know the bold sheriff drawing the pistol faster than anyone else and all this nonsense that you get in the cowboy movies was all concocted none of it ever happened cowboys were sort of the dregs of society people couldn't get a job anywhere so you hire them to push some cows around or something but this image of the Wild West and you know the great heroes and so on was developed and along with it came the ads saying if your son doesn't have a Winchester rifle he was not a real man if your daughter doesn't have a little pink pistol she's not you know she'll never be happy and so on and it was a tremendous success I mean I suppose it was a model for things like the later on when the tobacco companies developed the Marlboro Man and all this kind of business this was the late 19th early 20th century were the period in which the huge public relations industry was simply was beginning to develop brilliantly discussed by Thorstein Veblen the great political economist who pointed out that in the 
that stage of the capitalist economy, it was necessary to fabricate wants. Otherwise, you couldn't maintain the, the economy with the right profit levels and so on. And uh, probably the gun, uh, the gun propaganda was probably the, first, the beginning of it. And then uh, on that goes on, the, uh, pushing up to the recent period, since 2008, Supreme Court decision, the Heller decision, uh, what they call Second Amendment rights have just become holy writ. They're the most important rights that exist, our sacred right to have guns established by the Supreme Court, uh, overturning a century of precedent. Take a look at the Second Amendment. Uh, it says in order to have a well-organized militia, the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, there's a, the, up until 2008, that was interpreted pretty much the way it reads, that the point of having guns was to keep a, have the militia. Uh, Scalia, in his uh, decision in 2008, reversed that. And he has, it's a very scholar, he was a very good scholar. He's supposed to be an originalist, you know, you pay attention to the intentions of the founders. So the, you read the decision, it's interesting, you know, all kind of references to obscure uh, 17th century documents and so on. Strikingly, he never mentions once the reasons why the founders wanted people to have guns. These are not obscure. One reason was uh, that the British were coming. The British were the big enemy then. They were the most powerful state in the world. The United States didn't have a stand, had barely had a standing army. If the British were going to come again, which in fact they did, uh, you've got to have militias to fight them off. So we have to have well-ordered militias. And second reason was it was a slave society. Uh, this was a period where there were slave rebellions taking place uh, all through the Caribbean. Uh, slavery was growing massively after the revolution, at the time of the American Revolution, I think there were a couple hundred thousand slaves by you know, a couple decades later, it was maybe four million. Huge expansion of slavery, the most vicious system of slavery in history. And uh, there was deep concern, slaves, black slaves often outnumbered whites. You had to have uh, uh, well-armed militias to keep them under control. There was another reason. The United States from the, is maybe one of the rare countries in history which has been at war that virtually every year since its founding. You can hardly find a single year when the United States wasn't at war. Uh, the, one of the, well, there were two. There was, uh, the, you know, when you look back at the American Revolution, the textbook story is uh, taxation without representation, which is not false, but far from the whole story. Uh, two major factors in the revolution were that the British were imposing a restriction on expansion of settlement beyond the Appalachian Mountains into what was called Indian country. The British were blocking that. The settlers wanted to expand to the west, uh, not just people who wanted land, but also great land speculators like George Washington, one of the leading ones, wanted to move into the western areas. Western meant right over the mountains. British were blocking that. And the 
suffrage could expand. The other reason was slavery. Uh, in uh, 1772, I believe there's a very important uh, famous uh, ruling by leading British jurors, both Mansfield, that uh, slavery is so odious, this word was, that it cannot be tolerated within Britain. Could be tolerated in the colonies like Jamaica, but not within Britain. Well, the U.S. colonies were essentially part of Britain, and these it was a slave society. Uh, they could see the handwriting on the wall. The United States stays within the British system. It's going to be a real threat to slavery. Well, that was ended by the revolution. Uh, but that meant going back to the guns. You needed them to control to keep off the British. You needed them to control the slaves. You needed them to kill Indians. If you're going to attack the Indian nations, they were nations, of course. If you're going to attack the many nations uh, to the west of the country, you're going to have to have guns or militias. Ultimately, it was replaced later by a standing army. But you take a look at the reasons for why you had to have guns for the founders. Not a single one of them applies in the 20th century, 21st century. This is completely missing, not only from Scalia's decision, but even from the legal debate over this. There, there is a legal literature debating you know, the Heller decision, but almost all of it is about the technical question of whether the Second Amendment is a militia right or an individual right. Amendment. Yes. You mentioned the Second Amendment uh, in terms of uh, press freedom and uh, journalism, uh, a trade uh, which has uh, come under attack from the self-styled extremely stable genius in the White House uh, as the enemy of uh, the people. Uh, would you talk about that and also the Assange case? Well, the First Amendment is actually uh, a major uh, contribution of American democracy. Uh, the First Amendment actually doesn't guarantee the right of free speech. What it says is that the state cannot take preemptive action to prevent speech. It doesn't say it can't punish it. Okay. So under the First Amendment, literally, uh, you can be punished. 
punished for things you say. It doesn't block that. In fact, it wasn't until the, it was nevertheless a step forward in the, in the environment of the time that the United States in many ways did break through the, with all of its flaws, the American Revolution was progressive in many respects by the standards of the time. Even the phrase, we the people, putting aside the flaws in implementation, but the very idea was a breakthrough. And the First Amendment was also a step forward. However, it really wasn't until the 20th century that First Amendment issues became, really came on the agenda of the, first with the dissenting opinions of Holmes and Brandeis in cases in first around the First World War, a little bit later. And it's worth looking at how narrow these dissents were. The first major one in the Schenck case in 1917 was a case of somebody who published a pamphlet describing the war as an imperialist war and saying you don't have to serve in it. There was a dissenting opinion. However, the dissenter Holmes voted in favor of it, in favor of the punishment. It was very narrow at first. In fact, the real steps towards establishing a strong protection of freedom of speech were actually in the 1960s. A major case was Times v. Sullivan, the state of Alabama claimed what's called sovereign immunity. You can't attack the state with words. That's a principle that holds in most countries, Britain, Canada, others. And there was an ad published by the Civil Rights Movement, the King's Movement, which denounced the sheriff in Alabama for racist activities in Alabama, was sued to block it. It went to the Supreme Court. It was in the Times. That's why it's called Times v. Sullivan. And the Supreme Court, for the first time, basically struck down the doctrine of sovereign immunity. It said you can't attack the state with words. Of course, it had been done, but now it became legal. There was a stronger decision a couple years later in Brandenburg v. Ohio in 1969, where the court ruled that speech should be free up to participation in an imminent criminal action. So, for example, if you and I go into a store with the intent to rob it, and you have a gun, and I say, shoot, that's not privileged. But that's basically the doctrine. That's a very strong protection of freedom of speech. Nothing like it anywhere, as far as I know. And in practice, the U.S. has not a stellar record, but one of the better, maybe even the best record in protection of freedom of speech and freedom of press. And that is indeed under attack when the press is denounced as the enemy of the people, and you organize your rabid support base to attack the press and so on. That's a serious threat. And Julian Assange? Well, the Assange case is a 
Assange was uh, threatened, the, the real threat for, to Assange from the very beginning, uh, the reason he took refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy, was the threat of extradition to the United States, now implemented, uh, where uh, he will be, he's already being charged with uh, violations of the Espionage Act, uh, theoretically may even get a death sentence from it, but uh, what uh, Assange's crime has been to expose uh, secret documents that uh, the government, that are very embarrassing for state power, uh, the main one which uh, really uh, uh, was, you know, one of the main ones was the exposure of the uh, tape recording of the American pilots uh, uh, about how much fun they were having uh, killing people, you know, bombing, in the bombing. In Baghdad. In Baghdad, yeah. But then there were a lot of others, some of them quite interesting. Uh, the press has reported them, of course. So he's performing the journalistic responsibility of uh, informing the public about things that the state power would rather keep secret. Well, it seems to be the very uh, essence in terms of definition of what a good journalist should be doing. And what good journalists can do, like uh, when, you know, Cy Hirsch exposed the story of the Milai massacre, and that was when uh, Woodward and Bernstein exposed uh, Nixon's crimes, that was, you know, considered very praiseworthy. Times published the excerpts of the Pentagon Papers and so on. So he's essentially doing that. Uh, you can question his judgment. Should he have done this at this time? Should he have done something else? Lots of criticisms you can make. But uh, uh, the basic story is that uh, WikiLeaks was producing materials that state power wanted suppressed, but that the public should know. Uh, talk about the present occupant of the White House. Um, in some ways, his boorish and grotesque behavior is a pretty easy target. You know, people can feel very virtuous about denouncing uh, Trump. But uh, Public Citizen says, every day we witness a further slide to authoritarianism under Trump. Are you concerned about that? I'm less concerned than they are. I think the system is resilient enough to uh, withstand uh, a figure who is uh, defying uh, subpoenas, defying congressional orders, and so on. I think uh, Trump is in many ways underestimated. He's a, a highly skilled politician who is very successful in what he's doing. Uh, he's uh, He's got two major constituencies. One is the actual constituency, the standard constituency of the Republican Party, actually of both parties, but much more the Republicans. Uh, private wealth, uh, corporate power. You've got to keep them satisfied. Uh, then there's the voting base. Now here, what's happened to the Republicans over the two years is pretty interesting. Uh, actually, during the neoliberal period, uh, both parties have shifted to the right. Uh, by the 1970s, the Democrats had pretty much abandoned the working class. Uh, the last gesture of support for the working class was the uh, Humphrey Hawkins bill, 1978, full employment.
employment bill, which Carter uh, watered down so it didn't really mean anything. But after, since then, the Democrats have simply uh, handed the working class over to their main class enemy, uh, the Republicans, uh, with some you know, little changes here and there, but it's um, pretty substantial. Uh, the Democrats have become what used to be called moderate Republicans. Uh, the Republicans, meanwhile, have just gone off the, the edge. They're, well, I think there's a lot of uh, merit to the analysis by uh, two um, scholars of the American Enterprise Institute, Thomas Mann and uh, Norm Allenstein. They've just become a radical insurgency. You see it almost daily. So a couple days ago, Mitch McConnell said uh, uh, he's going to, if they have a chance to appoint someone else to the Supreme Court in the election year, fine, we'll do it. Uh, when it was Obama, he said, no, in election year, you can't do it. And they've simply abandoned any pretense of being a parliamentary party. Uh, we're just up and uh, up to the jugular. Now you can't, but meanwhile, we're going to support private wealth, corporate power uh, with uh, utter dedication. You can't get votes that way. There's not enough people going to say, fine, let's do that. So what the Republicans have had to do since the 1970s is to kind of try to cobble together a voting constituency on some grounds other than their actual policies. And it's been very interesting to watch it. It started with uh, Nixon and his Southern strategy. Uh, the civil rights movement alienated Southern racists. The Nixon team pretty openly said uh, we can pick up votes by being racist. They didn't use the word, but essentially by uh, 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 catering to the racist uh, elements of the South that are opposed to the civil rights movement. It was then picked up by one of the chief Republican strategists, Paul Weyrich. He noticed in the mid-'70s that uh, Republicans could get lots of votes if they pretended pretended to be opposed to abortion. The Republican Party had been almost completely pro-choice. Uh, Reagan, George Bush, uh, Goldwater, um, all of them, their position in the 60s was uh, uh, things like abortion. Uh, the state has nothing to say about them. They're a matter of between a woman and her doctor. Uh, Weirich recognized that Republicans can get the votes of uh, Northern Catholics, uh, working workers, and evangelical Christians who are a huge population in the United States if they pretend to be in favor of abortion, uh, opposed to abortion. With Anna, instantly, you know, they all became passionately opposed to abortion. Um, and uh, that's now one of the leading planks of the Republican Party. Uh, guns is another one. We have to be pro-guns. We can pick up people this way. Uh, the, uh, uh, what if, in general, if we have to be, uh, the working class, a good part of the population, especially the working class, has indeed uh, suffered under um, the uh, uh, programs instituted since the Reagan years, the neoliberal programs. Well, we can't tell people, look, we're screwing you, so you have to find some scapegoat who's responsible for it. Uh, in the case of Reagan, who was an outright racist, uh, it 
the black welfare queens, the, the black woman uh, driving up in a limousine to the welfare office to steal your hard-earned money, you know, all that stuff. Uh, then it became, uh, 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 the, now it's immigrants. The immigrants are coming to steal your jobs, and, or China is going to take your jobs. I mean, it's kind of amazing to watch it work. Uh, how, how is, for example, forget the immigrants. I mean, that's so transparent. We don't talk about it. I mean, there's almost 100% agreement that China is taking our jobs. How is China taking our jobs? I mean, does China have a gun to the heads of the, the CEO of Apple and GM and Microsoft and say, you've got to send jobs here? I mean, it's the corporate managers who are deciding to do it. So if you don't want uh, jobs to go to China, you should be saying, well, the corporate managers shouldn't have the right to make that decision. So should have, who should have the right? Well, believe in democracy, the people who work in the enterprise. Where are we now? Uh, back to the uh, uh, gentleman named Karl Marx in the mid-19th century, who should have working control of enterprises. So the logical argument about China stealing our jobs goes straight to workers' control of enterprises, uh, the main theme of the American working class in the early Industrial Revolution. Somehow you don't read about that. So China's taking our jobs, immigrants taking our jobs, uh, welfare mothers are stealing from you, uh, you have to have guns, uh, uh, abortion is, can't have abortion, and so on. They've had to cobble together a kind of a voting constituency, including these sectors, and also the relatively affluent. Trump voters are mostly pretty affluent. And they, of course, are going to vote Republican for their own reasons. Yeah. Well, now what's happened in the past roughly 15 years is you take a look at every primary, Republican primary, when somebody comes up from the base, popular base, they are so crazy that the Republican establishment wasn't able to tolerate them and was able to beat them down. Uh, people like uh, Michelle Bachman or Rick Santorum and so on. Uh, the difference in 2016 is they couldn't beat him down. He was a skillful politician, and he managed to take over, not only to win the nomination, but to put the entire pocket party in his pocket to a remarkable extent. And amazingly, he's been able to maintain the support of people that he is shafting at every turn with this pretense of being the guy who's standing up to you. It's very interesting to watch it. And there was an interesting uh, interesting article a couple days ago in the New York Times, a long study of uh, uh, Middle West, Midwest farmers. Uh, these are not poor farmers or families, you know, gardening in your backyard, these are pretty affluent farmers, but, uh, uh, but they're suffering from the uh, trade war. They're, they're losing their market for soybeans and so on. But they're still supporting Trump. And the reason is uh, we got to stop uh, Chinese uh, practices. It's unfair to us. What? We won't go into that. And uh, Trump says he's in he supports us. In fact, one of the main person they quote says, uh, Trump said, uh, 
I was a charmer to a marvelous people. I loved you. And I'm going to vote for him. Yeah. So a little sweet talk and some, uh, uh, also some a little bit of cash doesn't hurt. So there's now $16 billion sent to farmers in the Midwest to try to compensate for their trade losses. Now where does that $16 billion come from? Well, it comes from the trade wars. Now the trade wars, the tariffs are simply a tax on consumers. That's what a tariff is. A tariff, the way it spells itself out, it ends up with higher prices for consumers. And it's not small. Uh, the New York Fed just uh, estimated the annual tax bite uh, as about a, a $800 per family. Pretty substantial tax, inc big tax increase under Trump, uh, which uh, helps pay off his constituency. It's a pretty nice scam when you look at it. But they're carrying it off very effectively. Uh, he's He and Steve Bannon and the rest uh, pretending to be the tribunes of the people, you know, defending the American worker from all these attacks. And uh, the Democrats have abandoned that. The, uh, by now, there's a few who are starting to talk about it, but as a party, they've pretty much abandoned the working class. In fact, uh, many working people voted for Obama, uh, believing his uh, nice rhetoric about uh, hope and change. But uh, within about two years, that was shattered by the 2010 election. It was gone. No working people are going to vote for this guy. Uh, Trump comes along and says, I'm your defender. Uh, I'm going to protect you from not only foreign enemies, but uh, the people who are stealing your jobs. Okay, let's give him a chance. You know? The fact that he's carrying it off is very successful. And the Democrats are helping. Helping. I mean, take this laser-like focus on the Mueller report, uh, Russia Gate. It was obvious in the beginning that they're not going to find very much. Now, they'll find that he's a crook. Okay, we knew that already. Uh, but they're not going to find any real collusion with the Russians. They didn't. Uh, we're not going to find any significant Russian impact on the election. And there couldn't be. I mean, uh, you want to talk about uh, interference with the election, uh, campaign funding by the wealthy in the corporate sector utterly overwhelms the effect of any imaginable foreign interference. That's the real interference with elections. Uh, whatever the Russians might have tried to do, it's, uh, it's, a, you know, it's a, you know, kind of a, a piece of straw on a haystack. And of course, it's nothing as compared with U.S. interference with Russian elections alone other countries who were just over where they're going. Uh, but so, but the Democrats just focused everything, all their hopes on somehow Miller's going to save us. And let's not look at his policies. I mean, the policies are murderous. I mean, Trump's climate policy may literally be a virtual death knell for the species. I mean, it's not a small thing. Almost no talk about it. Uh, his uh, uh, the nuclear uh, strategy review, which escalates the threat of nuclear war significantly, that's not under discussion. Uh, the tax scam, which was just a gift to the rich and the corporations, 
double gift for one thing it poured a lot of money into their pockets for secondly it created a huge deficit which can be used as a justification for cutting down social spending these things are on you go on and on none of this is being discussed let's talk about the fact that maybe some somebody in the Trump campaign talked to a Russian oligarch who placed an ad somewhere I mean it's as if the Democrats are working for him you know like paid agents of the Trump campaign Maureen Dallas who writes a column for the New York Times says her head hurts the exact quote is my head hurts puzzling over whether Trump is just a big blowhard who's flailing around or a sinister genius laying traps to get himself impeached to animate to animate the base ahead of the election in a way it's I mean he's a narcissistic megalomaniac that's pretty obvious understands nothing about the economy doesn't care about the world but he is extremely skillful in carrying off the primary tasks that a narcissistic megalomaniac has to achieve one is maintaining the support of wealth and corporate power which he's doing that's what the that's handed over to McConnell Ryan and the rest they make sure that that works and it's working brilliantly corporate profits are going through the roof you know it's fantastic wages are pretty much stagnating what more can you ask but the other thing is he has to keep his voting base energized and he's doing it very well impeachment is another case if the Democrats move to impeachment I think they're going to shoot themselves in the foot so you'd agree with Pelosi's strategy with Nancy Pelosi's strategy well I don't I don't know what's in her mind but I think trying to head off impeachment is a good policy for the Democrats you can see exactly what's going to happen I suppose the house impeaches Trump goes to the Senate the Senate is in Trump's pocket they'll exonerate him then what happens Trump starts making speeches about how I'm exonerated the deep state and the treacherous Democrats are trying to destroy the guy who's standing up for you against your enemies just like what happened with the Mueller report they were just walking into a trap I mean if you want to be concerned you want to overturn Trump on the basis of his actual crimes the thing to look at is not Congress it's the New York State Attorney General's office which is carrying out apparently careful investigations of Trump's fraudulent dealings over decades which I'm sure are going to pile up crime after crime maybe enough to send him to prison after he's out of office that's probably where it's all going to come out but that's but you know that's in general terms that's a minor issue I don't he's not my favorite person as you can see but as compared with the crimes he may have committed in you know fraud in New York with his hotels and so on that's very minor as compared with the fact that he's maximum he's 
escalating the race to disaster. This is the most important decision in human history. We've got a couple of years to try to deal somehow with a, an environmental crisis. Can be controlled. It's not easy, but it can be done. Waste a couple of years by trying to escalate the crisis. You might just push us over the edge. And in fact, I don't know if you've looked at this, uh, one of the most amazing documents in human history that came out of the Trump administration, uh, the, uh, from a part of the bureaucracy, naturally. Uh, it was a 500-page environmental assessment study done by the Transportation Administration, the point of which was to, to argue that there's no, that we should not impose new emissions controls on cars and trucks. And they had a very sound argument. The argument is, look, we're going off the cliff anyway, and car emissions don't make that much of a difference, so who cares? Their estimate was that by the end of this century, uh, global temperatures will have risen four degrees centigrade. Four degrees centigrade. That's way beyond what the scientific consensus says will make life unlivable. So what they're saying is, we're finished. It's all done anyhow. By the end of the century, everything will be destroyed. So why stop driving? Can you think of anything like this in human history? Ever? I mean, Hitler wasn't saying, let's destroy the world. Uh, of course, they're assuming that everyone is as criminally insane as we are, and that nobody's going to do anything about it. Uh, but, you know, all of this passes without anybody paying attention. Let's worry about whether Russia um, had some minor influence on the election. I mean, it's uh, looking at this from, you know, outer space, you think they're insane. Yeah. One last question before I reach. <laughs> <laughs> She's laughing, too. What's going on with uh, the young people in Congress like um, Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, um, Ayanna Presley, and uh, others, and teen activists like uh, Greta Thunberg of Sweden, uh, Haven Coleman of Co Denver, Colorado, young people involved in the Extinction Rebellion and the Sunrise, Sunrise Movement? Movement. That's very exciting. Uh, that's uh, really the hope for the future. These are very impressive people. Extinction Rebellion are great people. Sunrise Movement, which is, after all, a small group of young people, uh, succeeded in, uh, both by uh, their uh, think, uh, partly just through their activism, like sitting in on congressional offices, uh, got some support from especially Ocasio-Cortez, who's doing a wonderful job. They managed to put on the agenda the Green New Deal. Now, of course, it immediately got denounced as oh, crazy, this, that, and the other thing. Uh, but it's a great achievement. There has to be some kind of Green New Deal if we're going to survive. And they managed to move it from obscurity to the legislative agenda, uh, along with uh, Ed Markey, the senator from uh, Massachusetts. That's a real achievement. And uh, there are very solid, substantive proposals 
as to how you could implement these proposals. Now, the most detailed and persuasive I know of are um, by um, Robert Pollan, an economist at uh, UMass Amherst. Uh, but uh, it can be done, and these groups have broken through the silence and apathy on it. That's a remarkable achievement. In fact, it's uh, a kind of civil, it's, it's the hope for survival of any kind of civilized life. This is not a small thing. I mean, the human species is facing questions which have never arisen before. Is organized human life going to survive? in any recognizable form. I mean, you know, we're approaching the level of global warming of roughly 125,000 years ago, when sea levels were about uh, 25 feet higher than they are now. You don't have to have much of an imagination to know what that, that means. Well, shall we race towards it the way the Trump administration and the Republican Party wants us to do? Should we do something about it the way Sunrise Movement and Extinction Rebellion and Alexandre Ocasio-Cortez wants to do? That's the decision that has to be made. So it's good that you bring that up because that's of extraordinary importance. Thanks very much for your time.